Welcome to ID the Future, a podcast about intelligent design and evolution. Hello, I'm Andrew McDermott. Great to have you with me. Today we conclude our conversation with biochemist Michael Behe about his new book, Darwin Devolves. Behe is a professor of biological sciences at Lehigh University in Pennsylvania and a senior fellow at Discovery Institute's Center for Science and Culture. He is author of Darwin's Black Box, named one of the 100 most important books of the 20th century by National Review and World Magazine, and the follow-up, The Edge of Evolution. Mike, so good to have you with me again. Hey, thanks, Andrew. It's always great to be with you. We've been exploring your new book, Darwin Devolves, The New Science About DNA That Challenges Evolution, published by Harper One. On this episode, we'll conclude our series with a brief peek at part four of your book, the solution you present to the many problems and limitations that you reveal in Darwin's theory of evolution. Now, for those who haven't heard the previous episodes in the series yet, well, what are you waiting for? Go and listen to them. But here's a quick review. Part one of Mike's book, Darwin Devolves, looks at the major problems any theory attempting to account for life must face. Then in part two, he examines a number of ideas that have been offered as answers for the origin and development of biological systems, from Darwin's own theory to the most recent non-Darwinian accounts of evolution. And in part three, he turns his attention to data from a host of recent experiments and studies, and tells us what that data reveals about the neo-Darwinian paradigm. Now, Mike, as you begin the last chapter of your book, which is part four, you point out that Charles Darwin did not show that apparently purposeful systems could be built by natural selection acting on random variation. Rather, you say he just proposed that they might. His theory has yet to be tested at the profound depths of life. Darwin built a case with the best science available in the 19th century, but with virtually no understanding of the molecular foundation of life. Why is now such an important and credible time to be evaluating Darwinian evolution's strengths and weaknesses? Well, the reason is that now we have the ability to look at the foundation of life. When Darwin first proposed his theory, nobody knew what the cell was, nobody knew what molecules were, let alone the molecules that ran the cell. And so although he thought that random changes might be able to power the development of new complex biological systems, he wasn't able to test it. As a matter of fact, he and, and the others of his time didn't even realize that life had the depths that it does. And for 100 plus years after his theory was proposed, Nobody had the ability to look down at the molecular level of life in sufficient detail to see what was going on when mutation acted and, and selection worked on that. But now, in just the past 10 or 20 years, science has developed the ability to look at DNA and the changes in DNA that are brought about by mutations, and in particular, the mutations that can help an organism, beneficial mutations. So as the, the book goes on to say, we've now found out that in fact, most even beneficial mutations are ones that degrade genes or, or outright break them. And so they're not building new things, they're actually devolving an organism. But the, the important point here is that 
it's only now, only in the past 10 to 20 years, have we been able to look at this level because now we have the technical ability to do so. It's, uh, if I can give you an analogy, it's, it's like before and after the invention of the telescope. People could wonder about what the universe and what the stars were and, and, and so on. But without the equipment, without the technical expertise to look at the depths that the universe has, our conclusions could only be very limited. Same thing with the idea of evolution. If we cannot look at the basic level, the molecular level, where evolution actually happens, you know, uh, mutations or changes in DNA or proteins, the uh, molecules of life, without that ability, we can only get the haziest idea of evolution. But it's different now, and we can make a lot firmer conclusions. Makes it a very exciting time. Absolutely. Yeah. We are privileged to know things that nobody in the history of the world knew up until now. Now we can actually see why random changes cannot explain the elegance of life. That's incredible. Well, despite arguments to the contrary, you write that we're truly conscious, we have minds, we have free will, we're intelligent, and we know these things by introspection more firmly than we know any fact about the external world. Why do you start off the final section of your book with these statements? Well, because the question of Darwinism and design goes to the very foundations of science, the very foundations of knowledge. And it uh, raises the question, how do we know uh, how do we know that some other mind has worked? How do we know that something might have been designed? Why do we not think that we're the only intelligent creature in, in the universe? And we have to realize that science builds on another foundation. It is not the most basic knowledge. For example, science depends on math. Math is not science. It's a system of thought. And uh, science also depends on, on uh, logic. Logic is prior to science. It exists independently of science, and science depends on that. And science also depends on our ability to realize that there's a world out there. And it's not just our own minds fantasizing about other things. So there's many things that exist prior to science, philosophical things or, or more basic reasoning processes that uh, we have to understand to come to the realization of what is responsible for life. So how do we recognize the effects of mind, of intelligence, beyond ourselves? Well, the only way that we can recognize that another intelligence exists is to recognize what I call a purposeful arrangement of parts. That is, we see other things that have been put into relationship with each other, and the relationship has a purpose so that it, they can do something together or be something together or uh, tell us something together. Perhaps the easiest example is speech. 
when we speak, although probably never think of it this way, we put sounds together. And the sounds by themselves, like, uh, ooh, ah, ooh, don't mean anything. It's only when we arrange them into words and sentences and so on that we realize there's an intelligence there. If you found some creature that was making noises uh, ooh, ah, like that, well, you wouldn't know how intelligent it was uh, or not. But if it started speaking to you in words you could understand, you would immediately know that it had a mind. Same thing with words. If you arrange written words, letters, and so on, it shows that there is a mind behind it. It's not just ink on paper or, or some such thing, pixels on a screen. You can recognize a mind behind it. Also, with machinery, when you see pieces of physical objects, that are related to each other and put together so they can do something, like say, oh, a mousetrap, you immediately realize that there is a mind behind it. It turns out that's the only way, the only way that we recognize the existence of other minds. And of course, the important point is that we now see, you know, in spades, purposeful arrangements of parts in life, you know, unlike nothing we've ever seen before. So we can deduce that mind was responsible for life. Okay. Well, you say that reason is a unity, and arbitrary divisions of reason, such as the enlightenment separation of science and purpose, can lead to cognitive disaster. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Sure. Yeah. We have both physical bodies and minds, we, we humans. And so we can have purposes as well as just mechanisms going on within ourselves. Darwin was uh, the first person to suggest that, you know, who can, who can trust a monkey's mind if it has just been uh, selected for survival? And that's an excellent question. But as his theory spread throughout society, more and more people started to question whether we actually ha even had minds, if in fact just physical processes could account for our, our minds. And uh, one of the first famous examples where this came into public view was a trial of two boys named, last names were Leopold and Loeb. And they were convicted of killing a 12-year-old boy just for fun and a thrill killing. And their defense attorney was Clarence Darrow, who would later go on to, uh, 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 to be a, a big figure in the Scopes Monkey Trial as, uh, as favoring evolution. And he made a, a famous speech at the Leopold Loeb trial, where he said essentially that their minds had been formed by millions of years of evolution, and they were at the mercy of great physical forces. And so here comes the idea that these guys actually aren't responsible for their own actions. Rather, they're just products of physical processes over time. And that same idea has intensified in our own time 
and you know is is now pretty much the dominant idea in the academic world. For example, a famous or a well-reported book was published about twenty years or so ago, entitled "The Natural History of Rape," in which an academic argued that that uh, that uh, violent behavior was actually adaptive sometimes and therefore selected by natural selection. But in, in this case, since you're denying the reality of mind, you're, not, you're saying that mind is, is not really real, you are taking away the ability of people to actually be responsible, to be judged for themselves, to, to make up their own minds and so on. And and that leads to, to really uh, bad stuff. Yeah. Well, so this, this section of your book really is, is looking at the reality of mind and the fact that Darwinism just cannot uh, touch that or explain that. What, why is the ability to reason the greatest possible power of life, as you say? Well, uh, because without reason, there is no understanding. And if we don't understand anything, then there's no question about where we came from or what made us or uh, anything at all. There's only going through motions and continuing our lives until we kind of fall over. It's interesting, I, I bring up in the last chapter some writing by Richard Dawkins in one of his books in which he uh, he uh, is intent on showing that we humans are, are no big deal. He says, sure, we've got big brains, and you know that's that most other creatures don't have that. No other creature has it. But he said that if a Swift was writing history, then it might say that flying was the self-evidently most important feature produced by evolution. And he writes, if, if elephant astronomers found other planets that had creatures on them that had, you know, elongated noses, but hadn't evolved full probositude, they might wonder, you know, why they had failed to take that magnificent step. And it's kind of funny. And of course, he's trying to say that all these other features you know, they're neat too. And so why should we think that our big brains, our minds are important? But if you think about it for a second, you say to yourself, wait a second, if a historical-minded Swift argued about flying, it wouldn't be a Swift, it would be an intelligent being. And if elephant astronomers wondered about beings on other planets, they would have minds too. So you can't get even off the ground, you can't wonder about how other organisms would regard themselves because they couldn't regard themselves without minds. So I try to emphasize in the last chapter that humans are extraordinarily special because we are the only creatures that can, in fact, reason. We can understand. And I criticize Dawkins because prior to his retirement, he was the professor of the public understanding of science at Oxford. And his very job title presupposed the ability of 
uh, people to be able to grasp conceptual truths about nature, and yet he denigrates it because he he doesn't want us to think that we're anything special. Mm, Good point. I've always admired Richard Dawkins' fanciful thinking. Um, (laughs) So what would it look like if the scientific establishment officially affirmed the reality of mind? Well, if if it did, then lots of things could change. First of all, we could look at biology honestly and ask ourselves, well, we see the effects of mind in life, and what does it take uh, to put things together as they have been? Are there separate uh, designs? Are there separate features that could be added to an existing feature? Could you have transitions from one to another or or not? Additionally, you could uh, have other disciplines start to investigate questions that science has kind of taken over lately in the past half century or so, because everybody has started to think that science is the only source of knowledge. For example, uh, psychology could start to think that the mind is real, that in fact, it's not just a matter of electrical synapses and neurotransmitters and so on getting out of whack, but rather there's a real person there trying to figure things out. And and historians could look at history as a battle of real ideas, not just of forces that some historians posit. Literature, uh, there's a move gaining steam that calls itself Darwinian literature, which really and truly looks to explain storylines on the basis of random mutation and natural selection. But instead, you know, we could go back and see what real decisions people with minds have to make and what real dilemmas they go through. And it would go a long way, I think, towards reinvigorating and reestablishing the preeminence of, of humanistic studies. Sure. Well, something to hope for in the future, perhaps. Um, without giving too much away, uh, what can you tell us about the appendix to your book? I know there's a, there's a reason you included something at the end there. Can you give us a little preview? Yeah, the uh, appendix looks back at the past 20 plus years since my first book, Darwin's Black Box, was published. 20 years is a long time. And as I said, the uh, ability of science to look to the very depths of the molecular level of life in sufficient detail has increased incredibly in the past 10 to 20 years. Well, 20 years ago, many scientists criticized Darwin's Black Box and said, well, yeah, sure, we have a few mysteries here, but, you know, give us, oh, give us 20 years <laughs> and, you know, we'll, we'll have things readily in hand. Yeah. And so in the appendix, I go through several, of, uh, several examples from Darwin's Black Box that were heavily criticized and uh, whose uh, solution was promised in the not-too-distant future. And I show that absolutely nothing has changed, that while there have been some kind of cheerleading articles and uh, press releases and 
and kind of people uh, thumping their chest and bragging. If you look in the literature, there have been haven't been any attempts to explain the Darwinian evolution of things like the bacterial flagellum or the blood clotting cascade. And so it, it's, a, I think, a wonderful perspective 20 years later with which to judge the strength of the Darwinian argument that these folks um, had a lot of time, that, in fact, science has increased in strength tremendously, and it's great at seeing what's going on right now, but it hasn't advanced an inch in its ability to explain uh, how Darwinian processes could make complex systems. And as I explain in the rest of the book, it shows now that it's very good. Darwin's mechanism is very good at, at breaking things. Well, that's a great ending to an amazing book. Michael, our time is up for now. Thank you so much for taking the time to unpack some of the content of, of your new book. I, you know, I really think this book's going to be a true game changer because it reveals with astonishing clarity that now is the best time to weigh the merits of the theory of Darwinian evolution. And your review of the experiments of the last two decades helps us draw just the right conclusions about the origin and development of life. I really hope the book gains the, the right audience it deserves. Let me add just one thing, Andrew, and that is that people who are listening on the podcast might be audiophiles. They might like to get their information from speaking. And it turns out that Darwin Devolves is available in an audio form, an audio book as well. So uh, you might want to consider ordering it in that format. That's true. So many people, if they're like me, just have a pile of books sitting here. But what about that commute or the time on the bus or just washing the dishes? You know, there are times you can listen to a book and this one deserves to be listened to, folks. Well, Mike, thanks again for your time. Thank you, Andrew. Learn more about Mike's book at darwindevolves.com. That's darwindevolves.com. And listen to the rest of our series, as well as other episodes, at idthefuture.com or anywhere podcasts can be found. For the program, ID the Future, I'm Andrew McDermott. Thanks for listening. This program was recorded by Discovery Institute's Center for Science and Culture. ID the Future is copyright Discovery Institute. For more information, visit intelligentdesign.org and idthefuture.com. <laughs>